Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business and Vancouver Newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. And on today's show, we're going to welcome Dan Sutton back to the program. He, of course, is the CEO of Tanless Labs. We're going to be talking about everything from, say, products for horses all the way to click and collect delivery services that we could be seeing here in British Columbia with regards to cannabis. And then later on, Ali Pordad from Progressa and Linda Fakis from Glue Technology Society. We're going to have a good conversation about all the latest news in the tech sector, everything from, say, Twitter cracking down on world leaders to the development of Bird, the e-scooter rental company, making its way into the Canadian market. Lots of fun to discuss there. Before we get to that, let's take it away with Dan Sutton. And joining us today to talk about some of the trends shaping cannabis industry right now in Canada it is Dan Sutton. He is the CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us on the program. Glad to be here. Okay, so Health Canada, it's seeking public consultation right now on a new category, cannabis health products, and it's going to allow maybe the creation of a market for drugs containing cannabis. So humans, animals, what have you could seek out health benefits. And I'm curious about your thoughts about the market moving forward with regards to maybe even like the non-human categories here. What do you think? Well, first of all, I think it's interesting that Health Canada is setting up this consultation to talk about over-the-counter access to uh, cannabinoid-based drugs or wellness products that don't have a likely effect of inebriation or intoxication. This does make good sense. Uh, CBD has been demonstrated, still anecdotally, to have a variety of different potential health benefits for both humans uh, and animals, and is known you know, to not really carry the same intoxicating potential or uh, potential to inebriate that THC or some of the other cannabinoids might have. So it's it's super interesting that we are already at a place where we're saying, look, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of social impact, especially from CBD and similar products. And so let's reevaluate based on evidence, uh, people's ability to access those products. You think that with regards to CBD, the market has been a little bit overlooked and just maybe we need a little bit more facilitation from federal government? I think that CBD has a wide variety of potential use cases and ultimately consumer excitement beyond just uh, the highly regulated and limited access that you see from other cannabis products. Uh, It'd sort of be as if you were were marketing a tobacco tobacco scent as though it was a cigarette. Okay. This is something that is is not uh, as socially impactful, not as socially harmful, doesn't seem to carry a, any array of of health uh, compromises in its side effect profile. And so, yes, CBD may very well be accessed over the counter to a wide variety of different users uh, including as it appears, horses. Horses, yeah. I got a press release in my inbox and it jumped out to me because it was for Canna horse. It's uh, aimed directly at horses, which is kind of interesting. And we also know that they are, you know, that the industry is looking at products for, say, pets. I've, I've, uh, there, there's some well-known, uh, say, dog companies that are uh, out there. What do you think it is with regards to the non-human categories? We obviously know humans are going to be the ones buying these products, but uh, what's the market potential moving forward? Well, people really like to take care of their animals. Uh, and if you look at different sort of bespoke vet offerings and the way that people are, are treating their, their animals with food, 
high-end food, fancy dog food, fancy horse food. It all sort of makes sense. Uh, the people who really prioritize their furry friends in their life, they want to make sure that they're healthy and happy. Uh, CBD in humans, which may logically extend to other mammals, although the, the science is still a bit soft on that one, uh, it appears to elicit a systemic anti-inflammatory effect. Basically, your whole body feels a little bit more mellow, a little bit more relaxed, and that's probably why CBD is known to sort of... Uh, it's an anti-anxiety offering and it's, it's, it's known to relax people. And so perhaps that's true of horses who may have inflamed joints if they're uh, running around at high pace, dogs that are, are, are a little bit overactive. Uh, and I think it'll be really interesting to see, are we going to see case studies? Are we going to see clinical trial on animal CBD? Probably not, but uh, I'm sure we'll hear lots of anecdotes of my pooch sure does love his CBD. Sure. Well, as a licensed producer, you guys are looking at diversification with say beverages. Uh, you guys have us. Uh, some partnerships announced already. Uh, would you ever consider going down this road as well? Is there a good fit for Tantalus Labs? I would say never say never. It's not exactly on our radar right now. Um, but if if we can demonstrate that there's a demand for sustainably produced animal inputs from, from the cannabis plant, then we'll always keep an, an ear to the market. Okay. Well, one of the things that I also want to tackle today is, again, going back to kind of the patchwork of different sorts of regimes that we have across Canada. We have a company that they deliver alcohol. It's called Boozer. It is based in Toronto, and they've launched a subsidiary called Super Anytime. It's for online purchases of cannabis. Now, it, it's tricky, though. They can launch in Saskatchewan. They can launch in Manitoba. There are rules that allow for private enterprise to go there. But say in British Columbia, it is the province that monopolizes online sales here. Do you see any room moving forward for the government to maybe loosen the leash a little, allowing maybe, say, private enterprise to allow, say, the click and collect model for online sales? I think it's really important, uh, and I hope to see it. Full disclosure, those companies are good friends of mine. I think they're very smart operators, very smart software developers, and they understand that we live in an on-demand world. People are ready to pay substantial premiums for Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes so that they can have food at their house. And ultimately, this is a necessary delivery mechanism, uh, one of hopefully a diversity of more omni-channel offering, offerings that we will see for cannabis access here in British Columbia because it's happening in the black market and it's happening very effectively. Uh, since the closure of the dispensaries, there are now cropping up bike delivery services where you can get a wide variety of cannabis products. These are not quality assured. They're not regulated. Uh, and I think that we need to give entrepreneurs who wish to play on the right side of the law the ability to compete with those black market offerings uh, because very difficult to police bike couriers that are, are traveling around the city all the time. The only real way to defeat that black market offering uh, and channel is ultimately through a regulated analog. Do you think that there is, I guess, a, an easy way to do this, just knowing that, say, medical marijuana has been delivered to people in a very secure way for a number of years? Do you think that maybe the BC government would be poised to investigate this further to make it easier to get these products to the consumers? Yeah, I think the BC cannabis stores, um, you know, they've done a great job with their e-commerce platform. I think they understand now that probably the gross majority of users would prefer to visit a store 
probably that's partly to do with convenience right now. The e-commerce model only allows for delivery over a few days uh, in in post. And so I think absolutely we, we need to be satisfying consumers wherever they are. And ultimately, despite a functional e-commerce platform today, it does not allow that on-demand consumption the same way that a delivery service would. Uh, this will inevitably be a part of the future in cannabis in five, 10 years time. And perhaps if British Columbia was a little bit more assertive about loosening these regulations, we'd see Vancouver companies filling in to take this role, not just companies based out of Ontario. It's interesting you bring up the fact that a lot of people would prefer to go to the stores. We've been talking to this with retail experts on the podcast just uh, twice in the last two weeks about how that retail experience, it still is a different thing than online, going to Amazon, what have you. Do you think then that that's still just, it's a different experience because you want to be able to experience or, or be able to see the products, smell them, what have you. There's still going to be a lot of demand for that brick and mortar sort of deal. Yeah, well, it looks to be about 70% of consumers would prefer to go to a physical store location. There are a variety of advantages to that. You can speak to somebody who's knowledgeable about the products you're buying. You can look at the products in uh, oftentimes smell and visual jars where you can actually see buds of the product before you buy it. And and also, there's sort of a, a community aspect here. We, there's a lot of good stores in Vancouver that do foster that community, and they, they want to uh, be surrounded by like-minded people, whereas the e-commerce is probably more suited to people who are on the go, people who have fast-paced lives. They don't have time to travel around to, to cannabis retail locations every time they want to pick something up. And so I think there's room for all consumer preferences, and ultimately, all consumer preferences need to be facilitated in the future uh, of, of cannabis. I think the argument that the government's been up to their neck in these regulations and the BC cannabis stores has been, you know, getting itself online. We've been we've been in the market now for nine months, and so it's probably time to look towards where we can iterate and how we can uh, grow this business into something that British Columbia can be proud of, and ultimately will be the largest, at least, agricultural business in British Columbia in terms of tax tax revenue in the next eighteen months. I, I just also wonder that if it is attracting, say new people towards this particular market, so people that were not familiar with the products at all. I don't know, clicking online, having something delivered to you that you don't even have any familiarity with. I, I just don't know if that's necessarily going to be the, the best model moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it would be a lot better if you had a, de a delivery person that was coming maybe with a variety of different products okay. and they could describe those things to you. Um, but it's it's it definitely, we don't we don't spend too much time speculating on why someone may or may not buy from e-commerce or how we can make that e-commerce experience different because that's ultimately outside of our control. We just think every consumer perhaps has a different uh, purchase pattern or a different preference. And the more we can facilitate those users, the more effectively this market will erode uh, the, the substantially entrenched black market here in British Columbia. Right. Well, Dan, as always, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. And stay with us. The BIV Tech Panel will be joining us right after this. And joining us today to talk all about the latest news in the tech sector, it is Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Fakas, CEO of Glue Technology Society. Linda, Ali, great to have both of you guys here in the studio today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Okay, well, let's kick it off with Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada. They've just committed $29.5 million to the Digital Literacy Exchange Program 
I think you have some insights into this, Linda. Tell us a little bit about how your organization could benefit from this and what it means for the people that use your organization. Yeah, Ooh. this is this is a big win for Canada. $29.5 million going to uh, roughly 30 nonprofits across the country who are increasing digital literacy skills for Canadians. Our focus is um, on seniors, so helping people over 65 get the digital skills they need to uh, participate in our digital economy, go online to shop, bank, stay healthy and connected. Um, and to have federal support, finally, we've been at this for three years, so finally the federal government say, okay, this is important, let's make this happen, and to put money up um, to do that, and a lot of support for the nonprofits that are participating. It's a really great program, it's a, a proud moment for Canada, and it's going to be an exciting few years to see what we all do to help our citizens become digitally literate, because we're behind, right? We're really yep. behind the UK. We're behind most other first world nations. We're not behind America. They're still trailing. <laughs> but uh, it's a it's important. It's exciting work. Yeah, I mean, we have an aging population. And uh, I'm happy for you and your organization. I think this is uh, uh, obviously, you know, we need it. And it's going to be more needed as the population continues to age and this gap uh, continues to exist. Uh, you know, coming from the financial space, we see the big gap on the financial literacy side yeah, uh, and exactly. financial and even the digital financial literacy is totally lacking right across the country. So I hope that uh, your organization and these other organizations that were selected benefit from from these funds. And hopefully uh, we can start to close that gap. Well, yeah. exactly. It's going to be 25 percent of our population in 2030, roughly 25 percent that will be seniors. And and. You know, the financial literacy is so critical. I hear from people all the time that their banks are telling them online banking's not safe. Yeah. And it's like, come on, you wow. guys, we got to have some understanding of what is how to be online securely and safely. That's part of what we do. But to understand this isn't something to be afraid of. We really need to push them uh, into these skills because their banks are closing. Yep. There's a lot of great technology they can benefit from. Yep. Ali knows this better than I do on the financial side. So we really need to push people over. And to push people into this space means they need support, they need guidance, they need a trusted voice to help them understand what's safe, what's effective, where should I be? And that's uh, the role Glue is playing in that and the federal government supporting us in doing that. Well, I hope the statement that you met, that you mentioned in your email to us uh, comes true and what you figure in no time seniors will be using Facebook's Libra. So that uh, kind of <laughs> exactly. tackles both of those uh, there. But we'll see. Well, that's going to pose a whole bunch of new, a new concerns. So. Yeah. We're going to have to figure it out. <laughs> first well, yeah. you'll you'll tell them the the trials and tribulations of uh the potential behind getting into crypto as well so uh, the cash is dead that's going to yeah. be an interesting that is an interesting class it's yeah. coming so uh, guys, the other thing uh, that's going on here, uh, Bird, which of course provides e-scooter rentals, it's landing in Canada, first in Alberta, and they also have designs for BC, specifically the Okanagan. I, I was in Portugal recently. They were everywhere, the these e-scooters, and they're just not as ubiquitous here in Canada. But uh, Ali, what's your take here about the potential for changing the way that we get around, especially in urban centers? Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to solve for, uh, I think, different issues for Canadians because we have a, a, an odd climate compared to areas that the scooter is more prevalent. So, say Portugal, where? Say Portugal, yeah. say California. <laughs> I mean, these things are everywhere in California as well. And I love going down there just to, just to ride around on them. Uh, but, you know, Canada, we, we have a weird climate, right? Uh, in some places, you only have two seasons, winter and summer. And, 
and uh, and winter, you're basically out of commission for five, six months. And so I don't know how effective these scooters will be in those climates, but I'd love to see the scooters here, assuming they're waterproof in Vancouver. I think it's a no-brainer for, for the West Coast. Uh, we have the climate year-round to support scooters, and so they should be here. Yeah, I agree. And and we just also need to solve for the problem of them being everywhere, like on sidewalks and yeah. in the middle of parks and, well, yeah, and that, improperly and, stored. And and so I don't know if you know the story behind Bird, but Bird launched in San Francisco. Today, Bird does not exist in San Francisco. It's not licensed. That. Yeah, the, the, there's three or four scooter companies that actually have licenses. And Bird, which is homegrown in San Francisco, actually is not operating there. The city shut them down for the reason, Linda, that you just mentioned. Really? So they they were littered all over the streets. They rolled out very aggressively. There were scooters everywhere. And the city just got fed up and said, you didn't come and talk to us first. And uh, we're not giving you a license. And so today they actually are not in San Francisco. Hmm. Well, I do wonder if maybe Vancouver can get in ahead of that. Because if you look at the way that the bike share has rolled out here, I don't see bikes littered around the sidewalks. They're all in these hubs. And when yeah. I was in Seattle, I saw bikes, the bike shares there just littered around the street. Yeah. So I think Vancouver is probably going to crack the whip pretty hard on these guys if they want to come into this market. And we have the bike lanes, which yeah. which is a huge leg up. I, you know, you know, a lot of I think the bike lanes were very controversial when they, were, when controversial. they were put in the city. Yeah. But if if the scooters can take advantage of those lanes as well, then I guess, you know, <laughs> it actually worked out quite nicely because there's some cities that uh, there's battles in, in city hall between pedestrians and between uh, drivers. Basically, where do these scooters go? And and some cities allow allow the scooters only on the streets. Some say sidewalks are allowed. And so uh, having the bike lanes is the perfect solution. Yeah, we don't want them on the sidewalks. That's for sure. They're going to be a mess on the streets. And I'm imagining a lot of heat is going to happen when the bikers start to feel like they're being pushed out of their bike lanes. But yeah, one solution for yeah. for sidewalks is to limit the speed of the of the uh, yeah. scooters so they can put speed limiting. Uh, uh, you know, uh, controls on the on the scooters, and so it makes it a little bit safer for the sidewalk. Uh, but if they don't have, if they don't do that, these scooters are fast. I mean, they can go up to their thirty miles an hour, and so uh, it has to be on the road. And this is the end goal of ha- allowing us to get across our city. We're not going to necessarily cross the second Narrows Bridge or the first Narrows Bridge. On you can give it a try. Yeah, we you, could uh, try yeah. really be, slowly. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I mean, they have good uh, good battery life and uh, you can get, get around the city. I mean, at that speed, you can get around the city pretty good. So we might not need Uber or Lyft here if nope. we have the... No. Scooters. No, that's what's actually, going to arrive first. The Vancouver, scooters Uber, will arrive first. Vancouver is a small geographic footprint. Yeah. I mean, it's a small city relative to other cities, and so those scooters, I, I think, could get, gain a lot of traction. Yeah, yeah. handy uh, way to get across the city for sure. Yeah, guys, some other big news that's uh, been dropping this past week, though. But Johnny Ive, he's Apple's chief design officer. I, anybody who read, say, the Steve Jobs uh, biography, just knows how integral he was to the company and, and just the way that we experience Apple products at this point. He's departing after 27 years with Apple. And I I just can't say that his influence can't be understated here. I'm just wondering about what do you think the future of the design side of things, the hardware side of the business versus, say, the internet services side is going to be moving forward, Linda? Yeah, well, I think this shows us there's a shift from Apple from hardware over to services side. We knew that was happening anyway with the stall of hardware sales globally for everyone. Um, Apple needs a big technology breakthrough on the hardware side that isn't going to be handled by design. They need their engineers to figure out something groundbreaking to bump them into a new hardware cycle. So it's a great time. It seems like a logical time for uh, Mr. Ive to leave Apple and 
with Apple still being a client, it's kind of best of both worlds. But his fingerprints um, everywhere. Will Apple change much as a company without him? I don't think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the writing was on the wall uh, as far as a few quarters ago when they stopped when Apple stopped disclosing, uh, you know, hardware user growth numbers to the yeah. public. I think the writing at that point, you sort of knew that uh, the shit that there was going to be a shift in the tide. And, uh, you know, and I, I, and, and I don't think he's going anywhere. He's just going to start a basically an external firm and he's going to be servicing their industrial design from an external firm. So he's not really, although he's not going to be part of Apple, he's not, you know, I, I think they're just going to be outsourcing their industrial design. That's what it looks like. Yeah. And he couldn't get the same leash with Cook that he'd had with uh, Jobs in terms of what I want to spend to design products and how much I can price the products I'm creating, et cetera. So that was a very different environment under Steve Jobs. So with, with Tim Cook being Mr. Support supply chain expert where money matters, every dollar matters. I'm guessing there was some conflict there. So there's uh, also that Wall Street Journal story that uh, went out and that kind of documented some of the friction between Ive as well as Cook, where Ive was focused all on product design and Cook was focused on operations. Cook, he was really grilling the reporter on this one uh, over Twitter said it didn't really match reality. But the problem is Cook couldn't really actually point to any specifics in his criticism of this story, though. It just seems as if there's a bit of a cultural conflict going on right now at Apple. Well, the realities of the world are changing and the realities yeah. of these big tech companies are changing. They're not going to, I mean, right now, 80% of Apple's revenue is from hardware. That's just not going to be their future. You know, I, mm. I think in a couple of years from now, we'll be talking and it's probably going to be very close to 50-50. Yeah. And, uh, and there's, Tons of examples of this right across the tech uh, industry. Microsoft's a great example. Um, I think about Amazon. They Am used to sell books. Now yeah. it's all about the cloud. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the um, I would like to have seen Ives prototype of the car, though. I'd like to have seen him transform <laughs> our car experience without a steering wheel and all that fantastic interior work he would have created. He'll, he'll, they'll still transform it from the outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Guys, lastly, uh, Twitter, they are, well, I don't know, trying to address something somehow with regards to the violations of the rules by world leaders. They're going to put disclaimers on any tweets from world leaders that violate their rules. And well, their justification, though, is it's in the public interest. I, I, I don't know. Is it in the public interest at all times, Ali, what any given world leader is tweeting out there, even if it's violating their rules? I think it can be. I think there, there's been clear violations of uh, of Twitter's rules, of Facebook's rules, and it's happened cons fairly consistently probably since Donald Trump took office right across the world. So not just Donald Trump, but other leaders as well. I think everybody sort of looked at him as a precedent and sort of took an advantage of the situation. Uh, I would be interested to see, and I, and I couldn't tell by this press release, I, I, I would, I'd be very interested to see, is this going to be an AI-driven uh, solution or is this going to be people policing the content and uh, will that make a difference? It sounded to me like it was going to be people from various uh, areas within Twitter, but I don't see how that's possible for that to be. <laughs> how many humans are going to be attacking this problem? A... And I'm curious, what constitutes a world leader? Is it that's going a... to be Ivanka only... Trump? Well, exactly. <laughs> yes. you know? 100,000 followers. Yeah. Uh, I think, don't they have to be a registered politician? So it's not just someone close to the politicians, which, I mean, a lot but of- does that mean like a city councillor in Vancouver? Good like, question. Yeah. I, I don't think so. So, but then that what, level do you say, oh, well, that person is a world leader and that person's not? And what influence are their, are their um, minions going to have over their communication then? Yeah. So if Trump can't be tweeting all this stuff he tweets, then won't he just have someone who's not going to get gray boxed tweet for him? It's a tricky situation. 
I, I don't, I honestly, I think, you know, sometimes you see these press releases and I think you see them because they're trying to show the public that they're trying to make an effort, but I don't know if there's any substance behind some of these, uh, some of these things. Like and then I, Trump, how do they actually execute? Yeah, exactly. And Trump on Fox News yesterday saying that he's looking at Twitter and look out here we come because it's hard to follow me and they're doing it, all bad things for If there should be any world. filter, it should be on Fox News. Yeah, not sure. on Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Well, on that note, we'll let you guys go. Uh, I want to thank you, Linda and Ali, for joining us on the program today. Thanks, Tyler. Have a good day. Thank you. That's Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Fawkes, CEO of Glue Technology Society. And that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends. It's going to help us reach even more people. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening.